0: Welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Young Humanitarians. My name is George Mullins and as per always, it's a pleasure to have you all back. So for this week's edition of the podcast, we're going to be discussing AI. Now, of course, AI is a new series of technologies that has really radical uh, impacts in all sectors of society. So to speak about this, we have a really fantastic guest, Mr. Marcus Storm, who is currently the head of AI products for a major multinational financial institution and is focused on developing the next generation of products and solutions, as well as being active in thought leadership in the global AI regulatory landscape across more than 77 countries. In addition to having really fantastic knowledge on this issue, regarding the latest cutting-edge developments in AI, uh, Marcus writes and comments on business, regulatory, and policy perspectives on emerging AI ethics and governance issues. And he's also the executive producer of Synthetic Society, a podcast which focuses on technological changes in society. And he holds a master's degree in physics through Imperial College London. How are you doing, Marcus?
1: Oh, great. Thank you for having me, George.
0: Fantastic. So we'll just go straight into the questioning then. So. Very simply, can you define for our audience what AI is and what are currently the major use cases of AI?
1: Okay, in order to define AI, I'm going to have to ask you a question, George. Uh, so, George, you're Italian and um, some people <laughs> some people claim that calzones are dumplings. What would you, what would you say to that?
0: I mean, as the Italian, naturally, I'd have to reject it, although there are obvious <laughs> similarities between them. But, um, but, yeah.
1: Right. So so the reason I bring this up is because uh, the standard answer you get when you hear about people defining AI is that AI consists of a certain set of technologies, X, Y, and Z, and yeah, that's what they are. And that's what is called an intrinsic definition. It describes what it is. Uh, so, uh, for example, ragu. ragu is made up of stuff that grows out of the ground, plus um, stuff that eats the stuff that grows out of the ground, plus some heat. But that kind of definition is of very, very little use uh, to you and me, right? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to trying to know if this ragu thing is, is nice and tasty or not. What I want to know is ragu is highly nutritious food, which uh, can be used in lots of different recipes like lasagna, which is my, my favorite. So uh, my definition of AI is very different to uh, other uh, definitions that you'll see. Um, I would say AI is say, um, one of two things. So a AI is anything that uh, makes a decision, takes a decision by itself or B, AI is anything that produces information uh, by itself. So this actually covers a lot of uh, technologies, including in the 1970s where we had expert systems, um, uh, which are basically if-else statements. If um, animal has four legs, then you know, it is cat or dog, and then if it goes bark, it is dog, right? And you might think, oh, this is not, this doesn't sound like AI because this is not like the, the neural network or, or whatever that um, we've been hearing um, so recently about DeepMind and, and all of these new companies. But again, we define things in general. We, we define things because they that definition is of use to us, right? So um, whether a calzone is a pizza or a dumpling, I, I literally do not care, okay? I'm gonna eat it, right? Unless you're, you're like a, a calzone manufacturing company and you have, you, know, you have to decide based on local rules or regulations, whether it's a, it's a dumpling or not, maybe you have to pay extra dumpling tax. But for 99% of us, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, right? So um, what does matter? Uh, regarding ai is not what's it, but what it does okay so what are the consequences of this definition so i gave you two so the first one is it makes decisions by itself right so we've done this we're now doing this more and more and more and actually entire communities live in kind of bubbles of ai driven decisions already and i'll give examples of those later on um and the second is uh, ai is producing lots and lots of information and this is especially uh, interesting when it becomes misinformation or disinformation which are two different things such as deep fakes as you know so fake videos of people um which look real and um those are very very uh interesting to us because um that will affect the way we live in the future yeah absolutely um
0: so I mean, how how do you
1: become interested in AI? I now think that uh, everybody everybody should should have an interest in AI, and hopefully by the end of this podcast, uh, you'll be convinced. Um, a lot of people working in software engineering or AI, right? They are lazy. Okay, and lazy, I don't say that in a bad way, uh, as in they, they don't work and they, they sit around watching TV and whatever. Quite the opposite and work very, very hard. But what we strive for is to, um, if something can be automated, if we don't have to put work into doing that, then you know, let's figure out some machine or whatever to do that for us. And then we can go and do other things that we want to do. Um, and I think everybody listening and everybody, in the country or, or wherever you're listening from in the world will agree with that statement we want things to be done for us um, so that we can go and do other things so 300 years ago everybody was in the farms. still um, farming took a lot of effort to grow food just to live just to eat uh, and now we spend very very little uh, time only two percent of the, the u.s population is involved in agriculture for example um so ai is is huge because it's revolutionary in the sense that it can unlock so much uh, uh, of this future automation that we've we've all been desiring for so long. And in the most positive scenario, then we'll get to, you know, utopian communist, whatever, where everything is abundant and so on. But um, that's, that's very, very far away. And as we'll come to find out, it's, uh, there are a lot of, trap holes along
0: that path absolutely so i mean you mentioned that it's revolutionary but obviously there are different sides of the coin so what are previously you've spoken at length regarding uh, the ethical implications of ai so can you outline for our audience what these are generally
1: i was having a conversation with a friend named mitchell the other week and um Mitchell was complaining that uh, uh he he was hearing people on the internet saying oh, a i safety AI safety is the biggest challenge uh, that our generation's going to face right uh, and um he said, "Well, I disagree and I said, well, what do you think is the greatest challenge and He said, climate change, climate change is our generation's greatest challenge and I said, "I don't disagree, but let's talk about this a little bit more right and Um, that was a very interesting decision because it turns out that, yeah, AI safety does have a huge amount of similarity to climate change, right? Climate change, one of the potential impacts we can foresee is that natural resources like water will become more scarce and therefore human conflict wars will become more likely. AI, because it lowers the barrier to, uh, force superiority, as in um, military superiority, it lowers that barrier so much that 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 also increases the chance, unfortunately, of conflict happening, because more people have the ability um, to conduct warfare in new ways. You don't have to have lots of men and lots of guns anymore. You can have a very sophisticated piece of technology that travels around the world in Less than a second, and uh, takes over or destroys certain parts of your enemy's uh, infrastructure. Um, so that's very, very um, uh, interesting. That, that that comparison. Where climate change and AI differ is that, and where I told Mitchell this is more pressing, right? I I didn't say, I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but I'm saying this is a particular risk regarding AI. Is that nowadays, thankfully, we are, um, we seem to be working much more closely together towards uh, solving climate change. We're putting huge amounts of effort into renewable energies and limiting our emissions, which is fantastic. On AI, we have almost nothing. Um, uh, We don't know how AI will well actually we know that AI will upend um, humanism and therefore liberalism itself right because it introduces an artificial body into the relationship between us as individual humans and we have the state but then you have this this third entity right? um, so it's going to upend uh, societies so and the way we have to think about uh, um, the future um, but in contrast with climate change we don't have very many people working on that at all so um, that's what makes it so uh, challenging right because uh, very few people know what's going on
0: so the key driver of of these new technologies is principally data which obviously has been described as the new gold in in many circumstances and so this is both a infrastructure Let me just start that question again. So a key driver to these new technologies, is, of course, data, which has been described in many different ways as the new gold. And it is both an infrastructure and a strategic resource that has vast implications on civil liberties that we hold dear, uh, such as privacy. So can you comment on why data is so essential to AI, especially if we consider um, uh, biases in data?
1: So very recently, the National Health Service of the United Kingdom, which is our publicly run health service, um, announced that they were going to start taking patients' medical data and aggregating it together, putting it all together, and um, they will partner with uh, other Private sector companies, in order to analyze that, right? and um, predictably, there was a big backlash in this country, where lots of people are aware of privacy and, you know, um, fight very hard to protect it. Uh, if we reword this um, this statement, so um, instead of what the news reports, which is you know, uh, NHS is scraping patients' data and uh, will. Um, be sending it to uh, private companies and and third bodies and and whatever. Um, If we rephrase that to uh, your doctor is going to take your your medical history and without identifying it, uh, discuss it with other doctors across the country and maybe some medical experts. And uh, therefore by doing that, um, help come up with new medical solutions that will benefit everybody in the long run. This is the same, this is the same statement. And that's really important to remember because data is information. Um, It's not new. It's been around since humans were around and we started gossiping with each other. And we said, there's a lion in that bush over there. That's a piece of data. And when we think about data and, and privacy, we have to remember that our, like, literally, our society and privacy laws and whatever, they are built upon a human uh, relation with data. Um, what that means is that we form those laws um, according to the technological limits of our brains. So um, we assume that we're going to forget things in the future right there's there's a kind of an implicit right to be forgotten in, in in our in our country even before that was an EU thing um, because we knew that people can change your time, so it's not very fair to to go back and judge somebody from something they said 20 years ago and uh, that is being painstakingly translated into uh, hard privacy rules um, because nowadays everything that you say And I really do feel for um, the younger generation, which has grown up entirely online. So there's a probably massive uh, snail trail, not snail trail, there's a massive uh, database of everything they've ever done from maybe the age of three, when they first got on their iPad and started playing games. Uh, You can see what games they played at what time, you can see where they were, you can see what they said, that's just gonna get uh, even more severe, right? Okay, so we have to reconcile that with um, the, the human way of doing things, which is, um, again, treating people uh, reasonably, confidentially, um, sharing information with others when that benefits each other, uh, such as that medical example right there. So we have to be very careful about how we frame Uh, data and privacy because in my view there's not we we can't come down hard one side or the other. We can't just say everything should be private and you can't share anything because there are a lot of advantages to personalised advertising. Small businesses who target very specific people they they have that power to reach out to those customers very cheaply and that's great because um, certain people, especially minorities, have certain needs and I'm saying minorities not in a not ethnic or anything. So just, you know, people with um, unusual consumer habits, right? They, they want to buy things. So um, that's good for everybody. But um, neither can we say everything should be shared openly with everybody because that's not how we work
0: either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but then also, I mean, one of the issues that's caused by this is that when you have an AI that is being built on a certain set of data, that data needs to be representative of different groups as well. And in in oft- in plenty of circumstances, that data doesn't necessarily. It might come from white people, for example, predominantly rather than. Uh, BAME groups, for example, or um, LGBT um, plus groups. This is something that um, I've actually looked at in, in my own role. Um, I, I believe it's called the analytic um, bias problem, something along those lines. But um, let's let's um, now turn to some issues of international uh, security. I've wanted to incorporate this a bit more into the pod. So um, to quote uh, President Putin, um, Whoever leads an AI will rule the world, and AI technologies are likely to be de- deployed across a wide range of cyber activities acting in both physical and online domains. So could you maybe explain to our audience some of the international security implications caused by AI?
1: As I said in one of the previous questions, George, the implications of AI... Um, we can't stop it, by the way. We can't stop uh, uh, people developing AI uh, um, are huge. right? Because with AI, AI is kind of, there's no good historical um, comparison, but it's like pre-gunpowder and post-gunpowder. Pre-gunpowder, you needed um, the best steel and blacksmiths to, to forge sharp weapons that didn't break or bend, when hit people with them. Um, And you needed really well-trained soldiers who could shoot bows accurately and whatever, right? And after gunpowder, you had anybody who could pick up a gun or a musket and and shoot and inflict deadly force on a human being. So that changed uh, the nature of conflict drastically. And AI will do something very similar um but in a very subtle way and that's why i do urge people to to keep up on the news with this um, because the way ai is going to do this is uh, ai enables us to do things um faster than humans essentially and along with the internet which is our mode of communication uh, and connects us right um that means that we're all connected to each other. And furthermore, we all have the power. Um, theoretically, each of us as individuals can write something that attacks another human being, like no matter where they are across the world, as long as they're connected to the internet, which is the vast majority of people on the planet. So in terms of, uh, uh, if we talk about warfare uh, specifically, then um, no longer is our wars conducted on the land and the air and the sea, but they're conducted in, in cyberspace. Okay, they're conducted over the internet. So, in twenty seventeen, there was a, a North Korean virus, um, which is infamous, and this uh, um, this attacked our entered our national health system, and it led to uh, doctors and nurses unable to access a lot of medical information and so on. Uh, the the fact that north korea um, a pariah state with very little resources could literally spill blood on british soil in british hospitals is absolutely nuts like, think about that that's 2017. that was four years ago um between the time that you george asked to interview me and today when we're recording there have been two massive huge Uh, disruptive cyber attacks. The first one was the shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline in the East Coast of North America by hackers. Um, um, And the second was the hacking of the Irish National Health System. And both of these events caused huge disruption. And simply put, we have to be prepared to be um, at cyber war all the time now. It's like, um, uh, to, to make another medieval analogy, it's like we're all, um, we're all serfs, again, and we each have our own little castles and little lords, and they have to protect us from raids coming from, and they can come from literally anywhere. So it's very, very, very different. Just because we, uh, in Britain, for example, we're across the sea from everybody else, it doesn't mean we're safe anymore. Um the world is getting a lot more dangerous and it's not just um big players governments getting attacked um think about how would you feel if your your elderly mother or grandmother were uh, scammed out of a lot of their life savings by a foreign state-backed group right? that's that's for cyber warfare um that's a state coming into your country and taking resources away from your citizens so um, be aware of that and think of it in that context, and that's why we need to pay very, very close attention to these events. Of course, I mean another major uh,
0: use case of uh, artificial intelligence is, robot- is in robotics and autonomous systems, which is uh, something that I've uh, worked on previously, which are of course powered through AI and machine learning. In really, these are new technologies in all realms of military, whether that's air. Uh, land or naval warfare and I do very much encourage the listeners to just google uh, quite simply unmanned uh, vehicles, robotic vehicles and you'll really find lots of examples of these and of course We can see a future in which um, autonomous systems are preferred over soldiers as you kind of outlined previously at the moment the vast majority of these robotic systems are used to either assist with logistics surveillance capabilities or EOD which stands for explosive ordnance disposal Um, however there is also a possibility in which um, lethal capabilities are given to these robotic systems Uh, there have been a number of campaigns on this one called um, stop killer robots that was uh, being organized uh, partially by una uk uh, which is a uk based charity and naturally these would enable life and death decisions through ai so i wanted to ask you how do you see this developing over time and is this an inevitable future
1: Yes, yes, I do think so, um, and I'll tell you why I think it's inevitable. Because if you have an army um, in the UK, we have about seventy thousand soldiers in the armed forces at the moment. Um, you'd rather have robots uh, on the front lines uh, taking fire, providing cover, rather than your your own soldiers uh, taking that fire and potentially dying because of that. So there's a huge incentive to develop these autonomous machines. Um, and there's a certain subset of, of um, weapons that you're referring to, George, and those are called lethal autonomous weapons or laws for short. And um, that is the legal battleground for, uh, in which these um, autonomous weapons are, are, are being fought over. Um, some countries say that, you know, this should be illegal. Um, life or death decisions should only be made by human. Other countries like the UK don't recognize them at all, say that it's not possible to happen um, because somebody's always designed it, somebody's always operating it and so on. But um, again, think about it in terms of competition. You're always going to want more of these autonomous killers and less human killers. It's, it's better for your country. So, and in a sense, it might be better in terms of raw human lives lost. If, if it's just drones fighting each other in the future, then um, perhaps no lives would be lost in uh, traditional warfare anymore. But um, unfortunately, I do, I do think it's inevitable. There's not much incentive for a state to cooperate and say, you know, let's never develop these. Small states are always going to want to develop these, especially given the recent conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh in, um, in the Caucasus, uh, in which drones and unmanned uh, or remote-controlled uh, 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 lethal drones were essential in winning that war. So um, there's going to be a huge amount of effort going into R&D into these things.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, there are already years. Um, I very much encourage the, um, the listeners to look at DARPA in the US, which is a really big um, research program funded by the US military that's done a lot of work into this. Um, and of course, another potential use case of AI with regards to international security is in offensive cyber capabilities, which you kind of alluded to a moment ago, which um, would enable the finding of vulnerabilities in computer systems, whilst also propagating malicious codes. So this combined with the digitalization of war, let's say, means that AI can be used in, in essence, a sort of hybrid warfare combining um, online with, let's say, physical elements of war, synchronizing these different systems together. So, how much of a risk is this presently? You you gave a couple of examples, but how are these capabilities going to develop in
1: future? That is uh, a very very uh, pertinent question as well, and um, we've had some interesting we've discussed some interesting scenarios already uh, on today's episode. Um, of course, I've I've talked about situations where it can affect you um, personally when. Specifically, state citizens are targeted. Um, again, cyber warfare. So, I'll talk about it from a um, a state perspective and an interstate perspective. So, from a state perspective, it really upends the post World War II consensus in which um, basically you 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 don't fight offensive wars anymore right? because the the cost and the the casualties of cyber war is so low, Um, it's now happening all the time. And again, Britain, uh, our government published in March, uh, in the Integrated Review um, uh, and the the Defense Command paper, which is a a paper which sets out uh, the UK's defense priorities for the next five years. We uh, or our government has decided to establish an offensive cyber force. So we are explicitly saying that we are establishing a a force. You could call it military or not; it doesn't matter. Uh, a force which will um, be looking to attack other uh, nation states' resources. So that changes things a lot, um, and who knows at the moment, I mean, neither, neither you or I are privy to this kind of information, but there might be thousands or even tens of thousands of skirmishes happening in cyberspace at the moment, uh, none of which are overseen by humans because they are AI algorithms, right, essentially trying to hack each other and defending against each other. So that's, that's again, think of it, think of that, right, it's, it's totally invisible and that's dangerous. That makes us feel like we're safe. And, uh, we're really not, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a citizen, um, uh, just trying to protect yourself and live your life and not have hostile states come after you for whatever geopolitical reason, or you're a business owner, small business owner, large business owner, whatever. And you're trying to avoid getting hacked or ransomed by a criminal group. Um, it's going to affect all of us and for the state itself um it poses a big question because it it really forces us to ask you know when is this kind of uh, cyber warfare when is cyber warfare um, moral and legal and ethical when should it happen absolutely i mean thanks so much marcus
0: for taking the time to speak to us i just want to Uh, leave you with a final question which is basically what is your final message to our audience we've spoken a lot about a number of really scary scenarios so thinking of a let's say a positive conclusion would be really nice and also just where
1: can they find more of your work so two questions there so firstly final message and secondly um, more of my work Uh, so final message is Actually, I would urge the listeners to stay positive right? um, simply by listening to this episode, because you've reached the end. Um, I hope you, you've learned a lot more about the, the dangers and risks of AI. Now, the, the flip side of that is that if we can contain those risks, and it's up to all of us to do that, really, um, through our jobs um, or simply by expressing our, our views in uh, and participating in the political systems of the countries that we live in, we can help avoid these risks. And if we do so, we'll be in a fantastic place to unlock all of those amazing opportunities for us that AI can give us. There are some truly amazing things being done, lives being saved, um, uh, people being made um, wealthier uh, through this technology, which, can be tremendous for uh, progress of humanity right so um, that's my optimistic message to to end this podcast and I urge you to stay in touch uh, with me you can find my contact details in the bio you can reach out to me on twitter at marcus one storm that's m-a-r-c-u-s one the number one uh, s-t-o-r-m And you can listen to a podcast that I'm the producer of myself called Synthetic Society. Again, the links will be in the bio. So uh, stay alert, um, keep learning and make your voice heard when you think something is going well or something could be better. Brilliant ending there. Thanks
0: so much for your time, Marcus. And uh, I hope you have a really great rest of your day. Thanks. Thank
1: you, George.